right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Spark Your Fire listeners. Very excited to be here with my good friend Jazz on this uh, beautiful sunny Friday here in Sydney. How are you, Jazz? Happy Friday, John. Uh, and you're not in Sydney. What am I saying? You're in Melbourne. <laughs> but just for your information's sake, it's sunny here too. Melbourne's oh, good. equally good. <laughs> and by the way, it's the most. It was the most livable city in the world up until before COVID. Not sure anymore if it is. But <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, define livable, eh? But look, we're, we've got something very exciting for you. So, so we're gonna. So this week, in fact, last weekend, one of the biggest events in in finance happened. That was the Berkshire Hathaway 2022 agm now this is a this is a bit of an event um that the berkshire hathaway agm and the q a sessions at the end are legendary the q a sessions where you've got uh, warren buffett and charlie munger sitting on a stage taking questions for five hours uh and and the, these these q a sessions are, are legendary so what we're, what jazz and i are going to do today is we're going to go through uh, what we think of the the you know out of that sort of five hours of of gold, we're gonna we're gonna do the the top six uh, themes that they discussed on that day. So how does that sound to you, Jazz? Really good, actually. That's a that's a that's a very interesting one. We have never done that on our podcast before, and I think we should be doing this uh, every year because it's eye opener in a lot of ways. Uh, some of the things that they discuss, obviously, it's Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. Uh, always worth spending five hours listening to them. Uh, real eye-opener. Yeah, I agree. And, and look, you know, we always kind of dive in or, you know, not we, as in people always get into the, the nitty-gritty of where do, what do you think is happening next in the market? They don't think like that. They think about concepts. They think about investment um, theses and all this sort of stuff. And I reckon it's such a great idea to return to the values that they have in terms of how they made so much money in investing and just apply it to the, to the present so you can apply it to your own circumstances. Shall we get started? Sure. The first one I love, uh, but but you can just sense there's a Bitcoin debate in here somewhere, right? Let's let's do that one later. I'll, we've got time to put the gloves on. Um, the first thing let's talk about is market timing. So uh, he received a question from uh, uh, from from the crowd where he says, "Look, you know, you've said, um, Mr. Buffett, that it's impossible to time the market. However, your market timing has been pretty good." And then he went through all these different uh, market uh, events from the 60s through to the tech wreck and how, you know, as you might not have timed the market, but my gosh, uh, pure coincidence that you got it pretty right. And he said, now you're sitting on a whole wad of cash. Um, so how do you time the market so well? Um, I, I, so his brief response to that was that they've never made a decision based on the market um, or what the economy is going to do. So let's let's talk about that. Um, he also went through some market timing failures. He talked about the time they bought Wrigley's and Goldman Sachs. He said that was a, a bit of a, a mistake. Um, he says, we're not good at timing the market, but we're good at understanding if they're getting enough for their money, which I really like. So, Jazz, what, what was your take on the market timing thing? It was a bit of a, a big part of the, of the, the conversation. So I, I think when he says that he's not, or Berkshire Hathaway is not trying to time the market, uh, that's very true. Their, their core business is not trying to time the market and make the trade happen. Their core business is to study the businesses uh, which generate enough cash flow, revenues, have got long-term sustainability, um, and uh, then basically invest uh, depending upon obviously various factors, right? Uh, but I think what he didn't sort of clarify is or... Uh, something that should have been cleared out uh, 
the macro picture, I, th- I think they're still obviously Berkshire Hathaway when they're investing their money in whatever company they are, uh, they obviously always look at the macro picture, what the big picture is, right? If And the big picture over there means basically is if the market in general is overvalued on that particular stock that they're investing in, uh, if the P2E is, PE ratio is too high or P to, uh, or the sales ratio is too high, they're obviously looking at all that stuff. Uh, but that doesn't changes their core criteria of investing in the business because that business that they're investing is in is not a trade. It's, it's, it's a long-term investment. However, they can time the market still from a macro perspective in terms of um, if there's a big crash, like 2008 crash, 2008 GFC, they were sitting on a lot of cash, a lot of cash, right? So uh, they, they, they do time the market, but the criteria to invest in the businesses has got nothing to do, t- to do with the timing, time of the market. That's, yeah, that's think, completely separate. Yeah, I, th- I think... I think- there's timing the market implies that they're, they're they're taking a position on the future they're forecasting i don't think they do that i don't think that they um they use a crystal ball what they do is as you say jazz they they kind of measure the um their investment against a criteria and if it meets the criteria they'll invest and the impact of timing is that some t- some periods of time their criteria are met more often and other periods of time during periods of overvaluation, their criteria won't be met, but they're not necessarily taking a position on what the macro environment's doing. They're just saying, this is what we want. I think part of the, um, uh, one of the aspects they were saying is that they'll never um, invest in anything that returns less than 10%. So they would run it through their models. Does it get more than 10%? Yes. And so on. So, um, so I, I, yeah. yeah. So I think I think I think, I think I think on a scale of one to ten, if you look at, um, they are probably uh, the macro picture is not their number one criteria. The number one criteria is always looking at the business, the actual business. What is the actual business? What is the underlying cash flow? What is the long long term sustainability of this business? Right. What the future is like. Uh, and if all of those factors add up, then generally. Uh, the, the time of the market will be irrelevant because the balance sheet itself, the financial position of the business itself or the PE ratio of the business itself will tell you whether it's expensive or cheap or it's the, at the right price, right? So if they're investing in Coca-Cola or Apple is their big um, position at the moment, I think 54% of the Berkshire Hathaway position is Apple. When you, when you, when you, when you look at that, they, they're not investing in Apple uh, to time the market. That has got yeah. nothing to do with the time, 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 timing the market. It's purely got to do with uh, what is the business, and are we buying the business at the right price? Um, if the price is not right, that means it's either overvalued or under, undervalued, and then they'll make their call accordingly. Yeah, it's always it always. This is such a good advice for um, for local investors. So, what they're saying is, what's going to make you rich is not when you buy; it's what you buy. Uh, and you know, to your point, who wouldn't want to own a big stake in Apple? Like, I don't know if Apple, what Apple's next generation of products here. I don't know where, where the interest rates are going to go up or down. But who wouldn't want to own Apple, which is essentially a cash machine? You know, mm-hmm. so so they're focusing on what you're owning instead of when you're buying in. Um, and I think you also have to decide what kind of investor you want to be. So if you're if you're an investor rather than a trader then you really have to have the dil- discipline and diligence to be rigorous when you're analyzing a deal, if, it, if it's real estate or stocks uh, or, or or not, but then don't consider yourself an investor. Then you might be a trader if you're going to get in and out. So 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, you bang, you bang on. It's it's you got to define yourself as who you are. Are you an investor, trader? Are you a short term, medium term, long term investor? Because investor has got various categories as well, and trader has got various categories. Whether it's one hour trader or a, or a day trader or a weekly trader or a, or a four minute chart trader, right? There's there's all different uh, kind of themes out there, and we have said that in the on the podcast uh, with property a lot of the times. It's not about timing the market; it's about time in the market, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he he wrapped up that point with this very interesting, uh, very interesting point about perspective. He said, "When I first bought into the market, I bought." He goes, "The Dow was a hundred points," and he said, "By the end of that day, the Dow, the Dow was down about to about ninety-eight or ninety-nine points, which means he would have lost, you know, let's say two percent." He said, "The Dow is now thirty-four thousand." So, yes. so you know. You know, sometimes when we, when we look at what's going to happen this year or this month, and you know, I know interest rates, whether they're going up or down, is a is a big topic at the moment. We're jumping at shadows. We're jumping mm-hmm. at shadows. Think about what you want to own, and 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 just do that diligence up front because um, inflation kind of means that your returns are going to zigzag upwards for years. Um, mm-hmm. All right, zoom out. <laughs> zoom out. <laughs> So the next thing they talked about was quite interesting. It was almost the politics of finance. He talked about Wall Street, and then he talked about Jerome Powell and the Fed. So we'll maybe combine those two things. Um, so when he talked about Wall Street, actually, I'll, Jazz, do you want to talk about his, his view on Wall Street? So I think his take on Wall Street or the capital markets in general has been that they, over the last few years, the markets have been more acting like a casino. But when you're looking at the Wall Street, you're, you're looking at the businesses essentially, right? But his point is that in the last few years, the investments that have come through, through whether retail or wholesale investors, it's been more like casino investments where the money has been just flooded into the market. People have been buying stocks because they've been, because uh, the S&P 500 index has been just going up. Um, and it's sort of a, um, somewhere it's, it's it's everyone thinks that stock markets always go up they never go down but i think the point that he was trying to make which combines the other one is the uh, the fed how much liquidity has been pumped into the market over the last few years uh, through stimulus checks balance sheet in general um, and due to that it's become a bit more of a casino um, and not really a uh, uh, investors market, I think. Yeah, he, he describes it as he goes, well, sometimes it's a really effective way of a- allocating capital, it being Wall Street, and other times it's a gambling parlor. But he, he has this great analogy. He sort of talks about how the economy is this, he's, a, he's this really productive thing. There are goods and services being produced. There are ideas that are, are being uh, funded. And, you know, if you can think of the, the economy like a private equity fund fixing up a media company or an investor b- buying real estate or a factory. And then he says what Wall Street is. Wall Street is um, when the banking system takes money out of transaction and it takes, it catches the crumbs that fall off the table of capitalism. So capitalism is the productive engine and the banking system just takes the crumbs as in it's taking a clip on the transaction. So I don't mean any disrespect for our banker listeners. Uh, that was a, an interesting way of putting it. But the, the the capital markets are really important because they decide what's getting funded um, at the moment. So, uh, a very important um, part of the economy. And um, just to just to add yeah. to that, I mean, uh, one of the examples which he gave separately was the was Robinhood. I mean, if you look at Robinhood, yeah. um, that is the 
perfect example of how capital markets to some extent have become a casino. Robinhood stock is what down roughly 70%, give or take plus minus. Mm. Uh, but behind the scenes, how they've been running the company, uh, getting kickbacks, commissions and all that stuff. So yeah. uh, Robinhood was the perfect example or is the perfect example of uh, how the markets have just become a casino lately and mm. how with easy access to all these platforms that are available, whether it's eToro, Robinhood, there's thousands of them now, right? That the money is being just uh, pumped into the Wall Street without actually understanding what the businesses are or what what what, what the investors have been actually investing in. But you but you know Buffett and uh, Munger didn't make the the point that you just made, and you're right, which is that um, it becomes a casino when interest rates are so low or that money is too cheap. Um, the interest rate is essentially the hurdle rate in the economy. So it is the 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 amount above which projects get green lighted. So it's um, the amount above which you would accept to proceed with a, a, a project. And when interest rates are so low, everything gets a green light because the mm-hmm. hurdle rate is nothing. So mm-hmm. if, if, if your economy is flashing green, like everything gets, gets done, uh, it becomes a big casino and a big gravy train. So he didn't really make that point. He just said it was bad, but he didn't really say why. But he and did talk fact, about... Yeah, go yeah, for it. And the, and the fact that uh, with such low interest rate environment, uh, everyday investor who probably doesn't understand anything, uh, the retail investor who, who are basically just uh, getting caught in the noise. Uh, they look at the bank rate where you may get lucky if you're lucky 0.51% yeah. interest, uh, but the stock market is going up by, you know, about 10% a year. Or at least I can catch up with inflation. What they don't really understand is all the ratios that are behind that imply whether it's cheap or expensive and based on what Berkshire actually and all the other capital um, companies with, with assets under management invest, um, it's everyday retail investor doesn't have a have a have a picture of that, or they don't understand that stuff, right? So, mm. so when you when you when you look at that, it's it 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 has been a casino. Look at the look at look at any any market over the last two years, whether it was property, whether it was stock market, whether it was crypto, or whether it was commodities, resources, they all have been a casino. Why the money has been sloshing around and trust rates have been low, so the hurdle rate is not there. But so they, yet, yet. When he talked about the Fed, he he was very very complimentary. He said, "quote Jay Powell is a hero." Um, they're talking about the money that went out the door to su- to support the economy during uh, COVID and the lockdowns, and um, and he was he he sort of said, "Look, you know, Jerome Powell was a hero, did all the right things." He said other Fed presidents might have sat back and done nothing, and he described those people as thumb suckers. Um, just quick thoughts on that and we'll, we'll move on to the next one. So has Central Bank or the or has Jerome Powell really been a hero? I mean, um, he acted uh, probably too aggressively, uh, pumping a lot of liquidity into the market, slashing the rate right down to almost 0.1, whatever it was. Uh, and that has obviously had its impact on the market in terms of the financial markets being running the economy rather than economy running the financial markets to some extent. Um, but would you call him a hero? Uh, I'm not sure on that. Uh, I, I think he's been running behind the curve with the inflation stuff and all that a lot. Um, he openly called inflation to be transitory a few months back or last year, late last year kind of thing. And since then, he's changed his stance to it's not transitory. It's it's a persistent inflation over, over the next, we'll probably see it for the whole decade, right? When you, when you look at stuff like that, uh, Fed has been behind the curve a lot. Yes, 
for the point that Warren or Berkshire Hathaway is making at the AGM, uh, that they that he's a hero in terms of the way uh, the Fed reacted to the COVID situation. True to some extent, um, they they tried to save the economy and the markets as much as they could by uh, pumping liquidity into the market. But then also they have been behind the curve. Uh, I mean, my, my my personal view is that the, the Fed shouldn't exist. Like, and I know that that's not the most popular view, and it'll it'll never happen. It'll never happen. But um, I think that the reason we have, I kind of subscribe to that Austrian school, where the reason we have booms and busts is because we have central bankers pumping the patient full of heroin one minute and then uh, withdrawing uh, the drugs the other minute. So we're, we're either booming or we're um, in the you know in rehab, and um, and the patient's just never sober, and so. My view is what we're living through right now is the um, the hangover from a period of excessive credit, and we they're absolutely not heroes. That they, they caused they caused this problem, and I think if we pump the patient full of too many drugs, we're gonna we're gonna kill the patient. So I, I think that they absolutely could have done nothing, and we would we would wouldn't be going through um, this stuff now. But anyway, we'll, we'll that's just my own personal view. Mm-hmm. Um, Inflation is the next thing. These are all tying together. So inflation, he says, um, he's asked a question about inflation. He said, look, inflation swindles bond investors and savers. Um, But then he has this very interesting way of thinking about inflation, which I really liked, actually. So he said, if if your currency is losing 90% of its value, which he, so he correctly looks at inflation as a a debasement of the currency. He says, if your currency loses uh, 90% of its value that means things are getting 10 times more expensive and then he says you have to it forces you into capital investment so you have to increase your capital investment 10 times just to maintain your kind of position what i thought that was a i never that's a really great way of looking at it you've got to constantly be investing in assets to keep up Mm -hmm. so so that's true the reason we all invest in the markets is to beat the inflation and obviously uh, preserve capital or wealth, essentially, right? Um, And the reason that happens is why one of the primary causes is inflation. And the way we calculate inflation obviously is not right. But if you were to look at the true way of uh, calculating inflation, which we we have sort of discussed in the past as well, uh, probably the current numbers will be sitting at around, I don't know, 12-15%, wherever they live, right? Um, So and the and why is that happening? Because the the actual unit of measure that is being used to measure inflation keeps changing. Now, if you so another way to explain that would be without talking about money itself is if you are creating a high-rise apartment on a certain piece of land, um, you've got a set design, right? But if that land size itself changes. So let's say that if the block size is 1,000 square meter and we change that to 500 square meter all of a sudden or to 2,000 square meter all of a sudden, yeah. the value of that completely changes, right? So that's what he's talking about. If the if the underlying currency itself keeps expanding, which is what's happening, we, we're expanding the underlying currency, then um, uh, it's, it's, it's obviously much... You have to always stay invested in, in, in into the markets yeah. uh, to be able to keep up with that. Well, it makes economic calculation impossible. 
So I'll, I'll give you another example. It's like if you uh, measured me one day, you said, oh, John, John's six foot tall. And you come back a year later and you say, John's, you use a, a different tape measure and you say, oh, John's seven foot tall. You go, mm. but I haven't grown. <laughs> You've just used a different tape measure. Uh, mm. And that's what happens when you, you, you screw around with the currency. It's like you can't measure anything. You can't calculate anything. And what it does to the economy is instead of making long planning decisions like we used to when we had a stable currency, we make short decisions because you can't trust the currency for long periods of time. And mm -hmm. so whenever people complain, oh my God, we say like present tense and say like, oh my God, that's a terrible, terrible impression of my teenage daughter. Um, yeah, but like when, when you know, you're um, uh, stuck in the, the, the nowism, it's because it's because our currency is being debauched. It actually, kind of permeates into the culture. Mm -hmm. um, this is the core yeah. of the problem. I mean, this, yes. this is the core of everything, right? If you're yeah. going to debase that currency, then obviously, um, uh, uh, that 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 is changed. That if you're debasing the currency, that means uh, you're generating inflation or hyperinflation, right? So, which means uh, you have to always stay invested in the market. Which is why we have seen. The financial markets perform exceptionally well, probably over the last two, three years, because we have debased the currency at the fastest pace. hundred percent, hundred percent. And he look, he's good. He's good at acknowledging that, and that's why for me it's slightly disappointing to hear him say, you know, and and at the same time, Jerome Powell's a, a hero. So, um, <laughs> but 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 he, he's right on a lot of these things, and obviously he understands this better than anyone because he makes money through this period of time when most people are being left behind. But it brings us, in a sense, very neatly onto our final two topics. I can't remember how many. We must be on topic five and six, I'm guessing. Four. <laughs> Four. <laughs> um, so Berkshire, he got asked a question about Berkshire's cash balance. It sort of times in, ties into the timing issue. Like you've got a lot of cash on your balance sheet now. And we'll get onto Bitcoin in a tick. But he says, look, we always have a lot of cash on hand. I think they had $102 billion at the moment, which is quite low for them, actually. Um and he just sort of says cash is like oxygen. Before we get to Bitcoin, um, to tell us a bit about Berkshire's position on cash uh, and um, cash flow. So, so Berkshire has been known to be sitting on cash at the times when the market has been a little bit turbulent, right? So whether that was 2008, whether that was 2000, or whether that's now, they, they've been sitting on cash, right? Um, and he explained that very neatly that cash is like an oxygen. Um, you need it when you need it the most. Uh, if you don't have it, essentially, well, what will happen? You'll die, right? So although he talks about that they don't time the market, but this is where they sort of look at the overall macro picture of how expensive the markets are. Um, and then they obviously, uh, based on that, decide whether, whether they'll be, depending upon how expensive the market is, how much um, percentage of the balance sheet should be actually cash holdings. Um, and this is pure cash holdings or treasury bills. They don't, they, he's not even talking about commercial paper or uh, money market funds. So this is pure cash position or treasury bills, which can be easily liquidated. Right? Um, and, and this is where it's sort of contradicting to his original point that we don't time the market. Uh, you're timing, you're timing the market by looking at the overall um, macro ratios, which is the Schiller ratio or the Buffet ratio and all that stuff. And if it's too expensive, then obviously you sell out at some point, go in cash. Um, and when the market corrects itself, which is what's happening currently, um, they will probably reinvest out of that cash. 
Yeah, and the business and the businesses that you own should be generating cash as well, um, mm-hmm. which which is I think you know an excellent point. Um, I don't have anything to add to that. He did say at one stage that Berkshire is safe, safer than the banks, so he was encouraging his portfolio companies to borrow from Berkshire rather than borrow from the banks. Um, but yeah, they got they got a lot of cash there. He he did mention about uh, some of their companies have got. Uh, line of credit with the yeah. banks. He goes, I'm not sure why we need a line of credit, uh, why our companies need a line of credit. In fact, if there's any turbulence in the market and if bank banks get affected in some way, the first place they'll be looking at is the Berkshire for any help. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So obviously uh, they, they don't time the market, but they always look at the macro, macro picture, um, all, the, all, the, all the high level ratios of how expensive the markets are. Um, and wait for them to for that market to correct itself. Um, and obviously, the businesses are already shortlisted, the ones where they want to invest in from a long term perspective. Mm. And after that, if there's still a drawdown, it doesn't really bother them because they bought it at the right price in first place. Yeah. It brings us nicely onto the, the last point, um, which I think was probably the most interesting, even though they have no interest in it, and that is Bitcoin. Uh, and the reason it's interesting is because it comes down to what is an investment and what is money and what is currency. And so let me set this up. Um, he was asked about Bitcoin and he, he answered it. He goes, look, let me, let me put it this way. He said, if you offered me 1% of all the US farmland um, and you offered me, he goes, uh, and you asked me for $25 billion to buy 1% of all the farmland, he said, I'll cut you a check today. He said, if you asked me to cut you a check for 1% of all the apartment houses that had a rental income and you, and you made me, you know, you wanted $25 billion for that, he said, I'd cut you a check for that today. He said, but if you had all the Bitcoin on the planet and you wanted me to buy all the Bitcoin off you for $25, he says, I wouldn't give you a cent for it. Um, he says, because I wouldn't know what to do with it. He goes, eventually I'd have to sell it back to you for it to be worth anything. So we can get into a little bit of other things. What did you think of his, I, I, I know you, 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 you like your crypto. Um, I know you like your Warren Buffett as well. So, uh, <laughs> so, so tell me, what was your thoughts on his p- perspective on Bitcoin? So the way he framed it, it makes perfect sense, right? That if um, someone gave him money, oh, sorry, someone gave him an opportunity to invest in one person of all the farmland, He'll happily buy it. Cash flow. He's talking about essentially cash flow. So again, looking from a business perspective, it's a business model, right? So he's, he's purely looking at it from a um, business angle that it's making cash flow. Uh, there probably is a capital appreciation to it as well. Uh, so buy it. Uh, let's come to Bitcoin specifically. His comments on Bitcoin and Charlie Munger in the past has called it red poison too. Warren Buffett doesn't even use a smartphone. Warren Buffett never invested in technology up until lately when he bought Apple. And now Apple all of a sudden is 54% of Berkshire Hathaway's holding, right? So if you don't understand something or if you haven't spent enough time trying to understand it, it's probably best not to comment on it, right? And I don't know why he does that. He's obviously a very smart guy. He's not an idiot. Um, He's the richest man on the planet. Uh, But Passing a message like that, I think, is misguiding people to some extent, right? What he has done right there is called something uh, a, a scam, a pyramid scheme. The way he's framed it, it's essentially a pyramid scheme. A greater fool, yeah. Yeah. But what he hasn't looked at is how much capital 
has been invested in the infrastructure that empowers it, right? Um, how many mining operations have actually started in US just in the last year? Mining specifically uh, likes of Bitcoin, right? A um, lot of countries have made it a legal tender. So he's calling all those countries essentially foolish to some extent by saying it's a pyramid scheme. So my whole point over there is rather than passing comments like these, he should have probably spent maybe a month uh, learning about it a little bit before saying anything. Now coming back to something he said, something he said with regards to inflation, how good it will be if there was a unit of measure that wasn't inflatable and um, the monetary policy of that didn't change essentially. So he's talked that in the same AGM. In the same meeting, he's talked about inflation and the unit of measure and how uh, it will be good to have one that's not inflatable. But then he's calling Bitcoin directly a scam or a pyramid scheme, if not a scam, mm -hmm. right? Which has got the most, which is probably the hardest form of money out there, right? So before, essentially he's contradicting his own point right there. And the reason it's happening, and the reason he's probably doing that is uh, not because he wants to misguide the markets. Obviously, that's not the case over there. But he hasn't spent time learning about what the technology is, all the all the, the whole ecosystem that is built being built around it. We are talking about countries issuing bonds on Bitcoin. We are talking about companies putting it on their balance sheet. Sure. We are talking about countries making it a legal tender. We are talking about countries launching their ETFs. So the list goes on and on and on, but he's called it a pyramid scheme. And his value was a blockchain. Yeah. yeah. But then he goes then they, that there should be a form of money, which is not inflatable. Well, there is, you just call it a pyramid scheme. Yeah. What so, if, so, yeah, I, I hear you. I, can I, I, I think his principles of investing as applied to Bitcoin I think he's basically right on that. So let, let me kind of separate. I agree with you that he doesn't understand Bitcoin. And I also agree that his reasons for not investing in Bitcoin, if he understood Bitcoin, would be true. So he says um, that to add, to, to, to have any value, an asset must produce tangible things of value. He said they have to they have to deliver something. So, you know, you you and he talks about art and all this sort of stuff. But if you have, a let, let's say, a rental property, it, it delivers value and it delivers to the owner of that asset, a rental income. So it, it delivers something. Um, and he sort of says, if it doesn't multiply, it doesn't produce anything. I remember I had a, a Swiss client once who said, um, property has babies, but, you know, like it, it, it has, it, it delivers sort of something, you know, in the form of rental or capital growth or whatever. But Assets like Bitcoin and gold and even, uh, you know, don't have, don't have that. They're not productive assets. He's right about that. Here's the problem. No currency is, uh, produces anything. Even currency, which has an interest component, only gives you interest if you lend it to someone, in this case, the bank. Um, if, you, if you just put your uh, US dollar bills or your Australian dollar bills in, in a safe, it doesn't have any, it doesn't, deliver anything either. So if you think of Bitcoin as a currency, um, it, you know, only when you lend it out, would you get a yield on that? So I think that 
if he if he he's got to maybe think of Bitcoin as a currency, but he know he does know that Bitcoin thinks of itself as a currency. He just doesn't agree. He says, and he sort of says, you know, and the only currency around here worth anything, and he holds up a US dollar and says, this is money. Bitcoin isn't money. But to to say that it needs to have um, deliver something or a yield, I think is wrong because money never generates returns unless it's lent out. The examples that he have given with regards to farmland, apartments, yeah. buying them, he's more purely talking from a business perspective. That's right. Like Bitcoin is not a business. Exactly. Yes. Bitcoin yeah. is not a business. It's, it's, it's a hard money that is being compared to likes of gold, right? And it can be uh, used as a currency down the line when it is mature enough. At this point, it is not mature, right? But yeah. calling it a pyramid scheme, you just discouraged all your followers to even look into it, which I think is very wrong. Unless you have studied it and then you still truly believe that it's a, it's a pyramid scheme makes sense. But if you haven't studied or if you don't understand how it is being powered and how there's a whole ecosystem being built around this space, I think it's pretty safe to say that it's a bit of, he's, he's being a little bit naive over there. Yeah. I'll say. So I love Warren. I love his investment philosophy. I think, I think everything that he says makes perfect sense, but sometimes I think he just uh, doesn't spend time learning about some of the new stuff, uh, which obviously is very well known because he hasn't even got a smartphone. Um, Then why talk about, uh, investment, which could be one of the greatest greatest investments of the lifetime, when likes of Ray Dalio, his own competitors, is calling it one hell of an invention. Likes mm-hmm. of uh, Tudor Jones, Paul Tudor Jones, calling it the fastest horse in the race. Likes of Stanley Drunken Miller investing their hedge fund into this space. Uh, if you want to comment on something, do it, but at least spend time studying about it a little bit before before calling it a pyramid scheme. I think I love he discouraged his fans a little bit over there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great. I, I think it's great. And we'll just find out who, who was right in the course of time. I mean, um, I, 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 think it's, I think it's fantastic that you've got all these competing intellects uh, placing bets. And that's the beauty of the free market. You know, we'll, if, if you're wrong, uh, you'll, you'll lose money. And if you're right, you'll make money. And, uh, and that's as it should be. So, and, no um, and no one's saying that it's not, uh, that it's a sure shot. We're not saying that anything anything is a sure shot. That's why it's always invest maybe one percent, five percent, ten percent, depending on what your level of conviction and what your level of risk risk taking appetite is. You mm. go accordingly, right? So, you know, our outright rejection, calling it a scam or pyramid scheme, that's that's very silly. Yeah, Jim Rickards yesterday, I was listening to him, and he was saying that Bitcoin will never be a currency because to be a pro- proper currency, you need to have a debt market. And you'll never borrow, uh, and a, it, you'd never be a debtor. You'd never borrow in appreciating dollars. You always borrow in depreciating dollars. So he's, that that's an interesting topic for maybe another time. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but but that was an interesting point as well because I'm actually I actually think that Bitcoin is um, is the future, or at least it'll play a role. So, mm-hmm. uh, but they're all they're all, all the people who disagree with it make uh, very good points. So. That was that was the you know we listened to five hours of Q and A at the Berkshire uh, um, 
uh, AGM so you don't, you don't have to. That's what we do here at Spark Your Fire. We're here for you. Um, if, uh, if you like what we're doing here, um, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. We do this uh, every week and we, we interview some of the most important thinkers, not only in Australia, but around the world across all asset classes. So we really try to take a holistic view of, it, of investing. Um, and we, we, we do it, try to interview the smartest people. Um, so if you want us to cover anything, send us an email in the email below. Uh, and uh, of course, this is not financial advice. This is just uh, opinions from some schmoes down under. So don't take this as investing advice. Um, Jazz, do you want to anything before we wrap up? I think it was really good, actually. Really enjoyed this one. Um, only one thing I'll add is the uh, numbers that came in this week. Inflation, not sorry, the inflation, the mm. interest rate announcement that happened this week. So uh, Fed obviously hiked by 0.5. We yeah. talked about that throughout the year. Uh, that we'll see a 0.5 hike in May. And I think uh, over the next few months, we are going to see more, more of those 0.5 hikes. So uh, space to watch. And obviously markets have reacted to that accordingly. Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll keep doing it until something breaks. And who knows if we've had the two worst days since 2020. Correct. The stock market. Mm. Mm-hmm. To be continued. Guys, um, thank you so much for tuning in. We will speak to you next week on the Spark Your Fire podcast. Have a great week.